Well, the, the text that we come to this morning in our continued study in the Gospel of Mark is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. And I would ask you to turn there in your Bible to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. We started a few weeks ago in the, the study of the Gospel of Mark, and we're continuing. And we come to a short but very significant section today. I'm going to read it aloud, and I would ask you uh, to stand as you're able in honor of the reading of God's Word. And when I'm done reading, I'm going to say, this is the Word of the Lord, and we'll respond, thanks be to God. So, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. The Scriptures say, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you all very much. Now, <clears throat> the Lord Jesus Christ is the king of heaven and earth, and he calls all of us to respond to him in repentance and trust. I'll say that again. The, the Lord Jesus Christ is the King of heaven and earth, the Master, the Lord, the ruler of all that is for all eternity. And He Himself calls us, all of us, every one of us, to respond to Him in repentance and in trust. As we've been studying Mark so far, we've seen... Uh, Mark's introduction to who the Lord Jesus Christ is. Mark has introduced Christ to us not in terms of his physical appearance or his mannerisms or anything like that, but rather his identity and the, the mission that he had come to accomplish. He introduces us to him spiritually in that way. He tells us about John the Baptist, the, the long foretold uh, herald of the Christ who would come tells us about Christ's baptism, his willingness to stand in the place of sinners, and the, the affirmation of God the Father, the voice from heaven, and the Holy Spirit descending on him, saying, yes, this is the Christ. And God himself approves of the mission that he's come to accomplish. And then Mark told us that he, he traveled into the wilderness. He was, in fact, driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to endure the trial of being tempted by the devil, to stand in the place of our first father, Adam, and to be tempted, and yet Christ, unlike Adam, without sin. Mark has introduced us to who Jesus was and what he'd come to do in that way, and now he introduces us to the, the work that he'd come to do. And we see the very beginning of that work here in verses 14 and 15. After John was arrested... Now, Mark just alludes in passing, mentions the fact that John the Baptist was arrested and later beheaded in prison. We'll get to that later in Mark's gospel. He gives us some more information. But you all know very well that John the Baptist was not a stranger to the lesson of suffering we talked about two weeks ago here on Sunday morning. That it is the pleasure of God sometimes to bring his people, his beloved children, into seasons of real trial and suffering. After John was arrested... Jesus came from Naz uh, Jesus, I'm sorry, came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. 
Jesus goes out to the outer regions of the area to do the work that he had come to do. And what was that work? Well, it was the work of proclaiming the gospel. Proclaiming the gospel of God. Announcing the good news. Preaching the message of salvation. Jesus Christ came to do the work of preaching, of teaching, of proclaiming the truth that there was good news from God. Now, we're going to see as we go through the Gospel of Mark that this is, Mark summarizes well for us here. You know, he, he's telling us the gist of what Jesus was doing among people. Now, you know very well he did lots of things. There were all kinds of signs and wonders and miracles that he performed, all kinds of tender moments of mercy and compassion and provision for people. But Mark summarizes rightly here the primary thing he came to do is to preach this message. We'll see that as we go through the Gospel here, that that is a main priority of our Lord Jesus in the days of his earthly ministry. Yes, the, the cross was his end goal. That was the great work he'd come to accomplish in the flesh on our behalf. But in terms of his work day by day among the people, it was preaching the gospel. It was declaring this good message from God. We'll get to it here in a few weeks, but if you skip ahead a few verses to verse 39, well, from 35 through 39, there's a crowd looking for the Lord Jesus, and Peter says, the, the people are looking for you, and, and Jesus says, uh, verse 38, let us go out, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus' work, the work of priority, was the work of preaching this message to the people. When he sends his disciples out in pairs, the work he gives them is that declaration of the good news of the kingdom. After his resurrection, before his ascension, the work he gives his disciples, when he sends them out into the Jerusalem, Judea, the, the, the far corners of the earth, is the work of declaring this gospel message, preaching this good news, and making disciples. And you see in the book of Acts, this was the work that they carried out. The priority was set by Christ himself. There are many great works done in his life and his earthly ministry, but in a sense, all of those great works he was doing were a proof of what he was preaching. They were, a, they were a, an illustration of the truth he was declaring, which is, the kingdom has come. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, we'll talk more about the priority of Christ's preaching here in, in weeks to come as the scriptures lead us through it. This is just a summary that Mark gives here. But what I want us to do with the next few minutes here before we celebrate the Lord's Supper together is to, to consider this message that Jesus preached. I've got two points. The first is that Jesus preached an announcement about himself. And then the second is that he called for a response to that announcement. So the first point, the message that he preached, it was first and foremost an announcement about himself. Verse 15, he was saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Well, what time exactly? What does he mean by the kingdom of God specifically? It's a little bit difficult to get our heads around the concept of the kingdom of God. Uh, first of all, because in, in human history, the, the whole concept of kingdoms is not as 
uh, present and, and the fore of our thoughts as it was in generations past, but also because the kingdom of God, by, by necessity, is different than the, a human kingdom. You think about a human kingdom, when we refer to the kingdom of some monarch or some ruler, what we're referring to is the extent of that person's rule. Uh, usually we're thinking about geographical terms, right? You can look at the map and draw a boundary on the area over which this person is the ruler. And, and what, what's happening in the, the wars and battles between kingdoms in human history is often arguing about where those, lawns are where those lines are drawn. Where are you in charge and where am I in charge? I'd like to be in charge of that part that you're in charge of. Well, no, I think I'd like to stay in charge of that part. Now, that's the way we think about human kingdoms. That's what human kingdoms are. It's where is my rule? If there was a kingdom of Charlie, which there is not, thankfully, for everyone who would be in that kingdom, <laughs> it would be wh where on the earth is my rule recognized, where are people submitted to my authority? Right? That's what a kingdom is in human terms. Now, in some ways it's similar with God, but it is very different, of course, because what, what is God not in authority over? Now, everything. The, the whole world, and not only the whole world, the whole universe. If there were 10,000 worlds full of people in the universe, he would be in authority over all of them. The extent of God's rule, though, because he does not rule like a human king. He rules not with physical force, but in spiritual terms. When we speak about the kingdom of God, we are speaking about what is submitted to him and to his rule. We speak about where his authority is recognized and submitted to and exercised on the earth. You think about it this, in this, this way chronologically. You think about the garden in the very beginning, in the, the, right before John read that, right before the passage that John read earlier in the service, when our first parents were in, in paradise there in Eden. Well, that was the kingdom of God. Everything was perfectly submitted to the Lord God there. Uh, all of creation, including Adam and Eve themselves, recognizing his rule, walking in obedience and submission and honor to him. But something was horribly undone in that passage that John read. You recognize that there, when they rebelled against him and said, no, I think I'll do things my own way. I will not submit to you. I will not depend upon you. I think I should be in charge. Well, then the kingdom of God, in the spiritual sense, is very much thrown into turmoil. In one sense, it's upended and undone. Because here are people on the earth not submitted to God. 1 John chapter 3 says, all sin is lawlessness, is rebellion against the living God. All of our sin, friends. It is helpful to remember, I think, that, that all of our sin, it, it is not... It is not little mistakes that we make. There are no little mistakes to be made because every act of disobedience against the living God is an act of treason. And there are no small acts of treason. It is rebellion against the God who made us and gave us life when we sin against him and disobey. That's what all sin is. But in that sense... In that limited sense, the kingdom of God was, was very much undone at the fall because here on the earth, these people made in God's image, the crown jewel of creation in a sense, have rebelled against him and are no longer honoring him and worshiping him. 
rather than destroy his creation, or at least us, which we well deserved at that time, God left Adam and Eve there. In fact, continued to bless them. In his mercy, he left the human race. He allowed the human race to continue and thrive on the earth, although that rebellion of our first parents was very much written on our hearts from then on. That sin that we inherit from the very beginning. And so in that way, since the fall, the kingdom of God, though it is all things because God rules over all, the earth is, in, in a very real sense, not the kingdom of God in that way because there is active rebellion against him going on. So though we are very much as part of God's creation under his authority and under his rule, we have rebelled against him. We are insurgents against the rule of God. And the kingdom is, is unraveled and undone in that regard. Now, from the very beginning, though, God promised that he would restore his kingdom. He would, he would bring his kingdom back. In Genesis chapter 3, if John had gone on and read in the very next two verses in Genesis chapter 3, the Lord promises that he's going to send the Redeemer a child of the woman is going to restore things and make things right. As the scriptures go on, the Lord God's promise to, to make things right and to restore his kingdom gets more and more robust. It gets more and more clear. With this man Abraham that he calls, he makes it clear that it's going to be through a specific family that he is going to bring his kingdom on the earth. Generations later, out of Egypt, he calls Moses and makes it crystal clear that family is not just a family, it's a nation through which he's going to bring his kingdom on the earth and make all things right. As generations go by, he raises up King David and makes it crystal clear that it is going to be through a king who rules over this nation, this family, that he is going to bring his kingdom. And in the prophets, he makes it crystal clear that that king is going to suffer for the people that they might be forgiven for their sin. All of that brings us to this announcement here in verse 15. When the Lord Jesus stands there on the dusty ground in Galilee and says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. What he's referring to is, is that promise that I have been talking about. That promise made in the very beginning and, and made again and made again and expanded and confirmed and clarified through generations, all generations of human existence. There's going to be a time coming when the Lord restores all things and brings his kingdom on the earth. And here Jesus Christ stands and says, the time is fulfilled. Many generations waited the Apostle Peter makes it very clear. Many waited to see the day and did not see it. And we read at the beginning of Luke's gospel, there were some in the temple. There were Simeon waiting for the day that he would come. Well, it's come. The king has come. The king who will redeem the nation, who will redeem the family. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. When he says at hand, he doesn't mean about to happen. He means right here, right now. Here is the kingdom. The long-awaited king has appeared. 
and he has announced his own arrival. And, and friends, very much unexpectedly, without human fanfare, without the way that earthly kings, we talked about this some with John, his herald was very different, and the king is very different. He doesn't start downtown, he starts in the outskirts, and he announces to the people, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand. Here I am, the king. I might look like a carpenter to you, but standing in your midst is the very king of kings and lord of lords for whom you have been waiting many lifetimes. Now, there was, it was without human fanfare that he appears, but as we've talked about in this baptism, there's plenty of divine recognition, isn't there? When the Lord God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. It's it's difficult to illustrate what this must have been like, I think, in part because, again, kingdoms and kings are not part of our you know, daily life right now, at least not here. Uh, I know some, some of us are from places where there is a queen currently, right? Yeah. But, but even there, I think probably the, the authority of the queen is not necessarily a, a, a daily concern. Right? These things are, are removed from us. But I think we can imagine you can imagine the gravity of what was going on when the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, stands there in these crowds of people, in the midst of these people living their lives, and says, the time's finally here. It's, it's me. I have come. The long-awaited-for one, the great David's greater son, the prophet greater than Moses. The seed of Abraham, truly, here I am, the seed of the woman from the very beginning. The servant who would suffer, the Lamb of God, and take away the sins of the world. Here I am in your midst, the Lord. And people looked at him. They saw him, right? They saw him with their eyes. They heard his voice with their ears. God in the flesh. You can imagine what it's like. I will remind you, though, friends, we won't have to imagine it forever. We're imagining it right now, what it'd be like to look God in the face and know that he is the king. But we will not have to imagine for long, because there is a day when he will come again. He makes that crystal clear. Now, it will be as unexpected as the first time, I think. Although he makes it clear, it will be like lightning flashing across the heavens, and everyone will see and everyone will know. But there will be a generation of people living on the earth like this day when people see, his, see him face to face. What John describes as a face shining like the sun at full strength and a voice like a roaring waterfall. People will see him again and they will know the king is right here in our midst. And every one of us, whether we live to see that day or not, we will stand in his presence and we will see him. will meet the king the way these people met him. And he stood in their presence. We will know then there is someone who rules over everything. Not just something, not just natural law like gravity, but someone, a person who rules over all reality and all creation always has and always will. Someone. We can one day see with our eyes and hear with our ears. Someone to whom we all owe our lives and to whom we will all give account. Let me remind you, 
Bill Hall has seen today. Right? I mean, we talked about it yesterday. Faith becomes sight for the brother. He spent many, many Sundays for many years sitting in this room with eyes of faith looking to the king and believing him and bowing down in worship. Well, it's not with eyes of faith now. He has bowed down before the king. I I think, friends, if I'm understanding the scriptures rightly, even this moment, as we look with eyes of faith to our Lord, the king, our brother looks with eyes and sees it and bows down in the presence of the king. The king who appeared with these people in Galilee, he will come again or we will appear in his presence, every single one of us. That's the first thing that Jesus announces here, that he is the Lord and the kingdom has come. I ask you here, just in passing, have you recognized that he is the king? Have you heard that message and believed that it's true? That the world that we live in is not just governed by natural laws, but it is governed by someone, a person who made all things and will one day end and remake all things and who lives even this very hour. Have you believed that? That's part of the gospel message that Jesus preached. The kingdom came and he came because he is the king. I think to recognize that for the first time, that there is someone who is the Lord of all, and that someone is not me, that can be terrifying for a moment. Some of you have felt that. I remember feeling that. It can be absolutely terrifying to recognize that there, well, there is somebody out there who has absolute liberty in his sovereign rule over me. And I can do nothing to manipulate him or coerce him in any way. He is the Lord. That can be terrifying. But I'll tell you this, friends. In the grace of the gospel, that truth that is terrifying for a moment becomes the source of so much life and peace and grace as the years go by. And has been for me. It was terrifying to me at first. I felt like I'd been caught when I heard the gospel message that there was a Lord of lords and King of kings, and I had not worshipped him. But it doesn't feel like I'm caught anymore. It feels like I'm held in the arms of the God who loves me. The fact that there is a king to whom I give account and who made me is, is part of daily bread for me and the air that I breathe and the water that my soul drinks, the fact that he is there. I'll get very personal for just a second here. Many of you know that, I, I mean, I, by nature, I, I, I'm inclined to sometimes be a people pleaser. I don't like when people don't like me. I like when they like me. I like when people approve of me. I don't like it when they don't approve of me. And I've struggled with that, I mean, since I was a little kid. That's just the way that I've been, been wired. And, uh, and part of a, it's a vocational hazard for me here. Part of being one of the pastors here at Grace Church or any church is that people don't always like what I do. I do lots of stuff and lots of people see it and sometimes they like it and sometimes they don't. And in fact, it's very, very rare that everybody likes what I do. Uh, rare, rarely does everybody dislike what I do, but it's, diff- but it's, it's, it's very rare that, that everybody says, yeah, great. A lot of times after I preach a sermon, some some people will say, oh, wow, my goodness, that, you know, that really ministered to my heart. And then immediately afterwards, someone will come up and say, ooh, swing and a miss. 
You, you really <laughs> could have been 20 minutes shorter and a lot better, you know. Uh, there's so, so many responses from so many people. It, in some ways, it is the foundation of my peace and joy in life that I do not exist to please you because you're not my Lord. But I have a Lord. And I make it my aim to please him. Like the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, like, like he says in Galatians chapter 1, if I were still trying to please men, I'd not be a servant of God. I mean, I tell you, friends, the, the blessing it is to me to know that as one of the pastors here, I am your servant, but you are not my master. Oh, that is such freedom and it is such grace. And it allows me to actually be a servant to you. To walk up in this pulpit on Sunday morning and to know that there is only one person whose opinion matters in the end. And that person went to the cross to die for me long before I was born. And I walk out of this pulpit, no matter what happens, with the pleasure of God on me in Jesus Christ. I mean, that is freedom. That there is a king, and he is the one that I'm aiming to please, and he is the one that I'm aiming to serve. That is a gift, friends. Now, for the sake of time, I, I, we must move on here. That's point one. There is an announcement here about the king and his kingdom. Point two, to be quicker about this, the king calls for a response here. He says, the, kingdom, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, verse 15, repent and believe in the gospel. He calls for a response to the people that are listening. This is unlike a human kingdom. You know, if a, if a human king were to show up and say, this is my kingdom now, it would not matter how you responded. Right? If it were true, it were true. Right? All the flags would change, all the laws would change, it would now be the kingdom of so-and-so, whatever it is. He is not like this. The king of heaven shows up and he calls for a response because his kingdom, again, is not coming in human terms geographically by adding on to territory. His kingdom is coming in individual minds and hearts as people hear the message and respond to him. He calls for his kingdom. This is why he says later to his disciples, you can't say the kingdom's here or the kingdom's there. The kingdom's in Jerusalem, the kingdom's in Samaria, the kingdom's in the U.S. of A. You can't, you can't say things like that. Because the kingdom is in individual hearts and minds. Individual people hear the message and respond to the gospel and submit themselves to the king. So even in this room here can be the kingdom of God. But you could never say this room is the kingdom of God because it's individuals worshiping him. He calls them, you must respond to this message. Repent and believe. The king calls for willing submission, for individual response. And there are two parts of the response noted here, to repent and to believe. The first part, repent. When he says repent, it, it really just means turn around. It means change. In the, the Geneva Bible, an old translation, a precursor even to the King James, uh, this word gets translated in Mark chapter 1, amend your life. Change. Now that response, change, that flows naturally from the announcement, if there is a king, well, we haven't acted like it. We've acted like we're all little lords ourselves. We've lived as we've pleased with very little regard, no regard for his will, for his law. 
we've behaved by default as rebels in his kingdom. Acted as if we ourselves were lords when we are not. And many of you all have had the experience of discovering that the law of God calls you to live in a manner of holiness that you had not been living in in your life. You have changed in repentance. All of us on some level, friends, we have recognized what it is to to see in ourselves the inclination to think like a little Lord. To, To behave as if my judgment about myself and about you were where the buck stops at the end. What I think about myself is the most important thing, my assessment of whether I'm good or bad or whatever it is. And likewise, my assessment of you and your behavior is the only thing that matters in the end. And in fact, if you don't measure up to my assessment of what's good behavior, I'll start to dictate what the punishment ought to be for you. And whether I have to do it through passive-aggressive, cold shoulder, whatever it is, I'll make sure that you start to feel some of your punishment. Now, who thinks like that? Who acts like that? The, the Lord. Someone who's the king makes the laws and judges everyone and dispenses judgment. But isn't that so often how we think? We judge everybody else by our own standards as if we ourselves were sovereign in our lives. Well, the very arrival of the king and the declaration, I am Lord and you are not, it is an implicit call to repent of all of that kind of behavior, of all of that kind of thinking. It's a a declaration. You've pretended to be a little sovereign lord of your own kingdom. You're not one, and therefore you should repent. Just his appearance is a call to repentance like that. I'll I'll illustrate it like this. Uh, Our our children are of the age right now where uh, we're beginning to leave. My my wife and I can leave home for a little bit and leave them there, and they they can watch themselves, not for very long. You know, for an hour or two, we can go for a walk in the neighborhood or run a quick errand or something like that. And we come back, and usually things are great when we come back. Occasionally, things are absolute chaos. And people are, like, screaming, and all the cushions are off the couch, and somebody's hurt. And, you know, things have gone wild while we've been gone. Because all of the the rule and authority that we have over the house, it dissipated when we left. And all of a sudden, there were a bunch of little lords doing what they wanted to do. And it was a chaotic anarchy sort of kingdom there. But when we come back in and I open the back door and I say, we're home. The king has returned. (laughs) (laughs) The little king, you know, the... (laughs) My declaration, I'm home, it is an implicit call to repent. If you've been acting like a knucklehead and jumping on the couch, I'm home. Stop. If you've been out of line, get back in line. If you've thrown off my rules, well, come back to me now. That's why the gospel message, this declaration, Jesus Christ the King has come. The kingdom of God has appeared with him carries with it this implicit call to repent. You've not acted like he's the king. Well, change. He's here. He's come back. He's come to establish his rule and power. So I'll ask you this. Friends, have you heard that call and repented? Have you recognized that there is a Lord, there is a king, and he is not you? And have you, the way the Geneva Bible puts it, amended your life 
your behavior and your thinking to recognize that he is the Lord, there is a Lord, there is a God? Have you started to think and speak and live as one who knows that you are not your own to rule and your life is not yours to rule, but you are rather under his authority? He has called you. Have you listened to him? Will you listen to him? Will you go on pretending yourself to be a little lord in your own kingdom, angry at everybody who undermines your rule? Or will you recognize yourself to be what you really are, a subject to the true king, a servant of the real lord, to walk in accordance with his will and please him? That's what it means to repent in, in broad terms. Now, the last thing that I'll say, the last point, I want to make here the second part of this response he calls us to and that is to believe in the gospel he says repent and believe in the gospel believe in the gospel could also be translated trust in the good news which is saying a lot you might be asking what good news what you've been saying so far doesn't sound like fantastic news necessarily about the king coming and us having not obeyed him. It is implicit here, but it's explicit as the gospel unfolds further and we understand what it is that the king has come to do. This king who arrives and brings his kingdom, he also has come to accomplish salvation for rebels. He's come to work forgiveness for those who have behaved as little lords unrighteously in his kingdom. He's come to go to the cross. We'll see that very clearly in the chapters to come. Here is still part of that secret yet to be unfolded, so it's implied. But it becomes absolutely crystal clear in the chapters that follow. If we, rebels in his kingdom, turn to him, we will be forgiven for our sins. You can think of some of those places where it is crystal clear in the scriptures. Matthew chapter 11 all who are weary and labor, come to me, I'll give you rest. John chapter 3, the Son of Man lifted up. God sent him that all who believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. He is the bread of life. And on and on and on. He is the one who gives life. This king who comes to establish his rule, he is merciful and will forgive rebels. That's why it's good news. Again, you think about the, the kids in my house. If I come in the house and things are crazy and they have thrown off all semblance of submission to my authority in my absence, the arrival of parents is not good news. Right? It means the hammer has come to fall down upon you. Maybe it's time to pay for some of what you've done. But here the Lord Jesus Christ says that it is good news that the king has arrived. And that is because part of what the king has come to do is to accomplish forgiveness for his servants. The disposition of the king towards them is not, he says it himself, I did not come to, to condemn but to save. He came to show mercy to sinners. And that's why it's good news. This is why part of the response to the gospel is to trust, to believe that it's actually true, to believe that it's actually true that he is merciful, to believe that he will forgive, to believe that he paid a great price to forgive 
you and I, when he went to the cross and poured out his own blood for sinners. He calls us to trust that. He calls us to recognize he is the king. He calls us to respond, to repent, to turn around, and then to believe, to trust that he himself will actually forgive those who come to him. Have you believed that? This is, this is important. It is entirely possible to believe the first two, to believe that he is the king, to believe that he calls you to repent, and yet not to trust that he will forgive you if you come. It's possible to believe in his sovereignty, to believe in your own sin, and not to believe in his mercy and his forgiveness for sinners, his willingness to forgive. Will you believe in that too? The gospel calls us. Here, he himself calls us to believe it. Will you believe it? Will you bring your sins under the blood of the Lord Jesus and believe they are actually forgiven? The very significant thing we did earlier in the service when John led us in prayer to confess our sins and then read from the scriptures the assurance of pardon. Yes, he has said he will forgive those who come seeking forgiveness. There's a reason that we do that week after week after week. It's important that you believe it, friends. You believe that he'll forgive sinners. The gospel calls us to believe it. Here is the message. Here is the king himself calling us. Recognize who he is, turn to him in repentance, and trust him to forgive you for your sins. It is that simple, in a way. John sum- I mean, Mark summarizes it well. By the way, it is that simple if you're talking to somebody else about it. I mean, if you were to talk to your neighbor or a coworker and you were to say, hey, friends, did you know that Jesus Christ is the Lord of heaven and earth? I mean, you have not acted like it. You've not lived like it. But if you turn to him even now, he'll forgive you. He'll have mercy on you. That's what the cross is all about. He died to pay for the sins of those who come to him. I mean, that, that, is, that is the gospel. That can be told to our neighbors. That can be told to one another here in the church. It needs to be told day after day, week after week. That can be told to ourselves, can't it? First thing in the morning and last thing before we go to bed. There is a king in heaven. And though in so many ways I have not honored him as I should, he is merciful and he forgives all who come to him. That's the heart of it. That is what the cross is about. A declaration in flesh and blood. And friends, that's what this table is about that we're going to celebrate. The king has come. And he poured out his blood and he gave up his body to be broken so that we who are unworthy might have forgiveness in him. The same gospel message he preached there in Galilee, the same one he worked out on the cross, it's what we're about to observe here in the table. Christ the King died so that I can live and I, I repent and trust him. I turn from my own little kingdom, which is a fake kingdom anyway, and give myself to him, believing that he'll forgive me. Amen? Amen. Well, let's, let's pray together now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the, the kindness you've shown us in sending the Lord Jesus Christ to declare this gospel message. We thank you for the kindness that you've shown us in keeping it through the many, many generations from that day in Galilee till now. Thank you for your word that teaches us. And oh God, thank you that you still do that saving work today that you did back then. And you still do it until the very final day. That you still receive 
rebels who will come to you for mercy. Oh, may we come to you for mercy today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.